This series of Tilly at Home With is sponsored by Wanderlust. I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying doing yoga at home and I've been using their new Wanderlust TV platform. There's yoga, meditation, breath work and fitness classes on there and all with world-class teachers from the US and the UK. Great news is that they're offering the listeners of this podcast a three-month subscription for just £9. Everything's included in that, so there are no excuses. Just go to tv.wanderlust.com and use the code Tilly at Home and find your true north. Welcome to Tilly at Home with Andy Baggett. Andy is a healer, an author and a spiritual teacher. He has studied with masters from traditions including Celtic, Native American, South American and Chinese. His current work focuses on empowering people to connect with their inner wisdom so that they may achieve health, happiness and fulfilment. He is a trained acupuncturist, a natural nutritionist, a Tai Chi teacher and a practicing shaman from the Celtic and pre-Celtic traditions. Andy lectures and teaches extensively as well as running a busy healing practice from his home in Somerset. So Andy, thank you so much for being here with me. It's such a massive honour for me. You've been the biggest source of inspiration, guidance to me for the last 20 years I think it is. And the things you've told me, the things I remember, I recall, I tell other people your wisdom. So I just wanted to start with hearing from you, your journey, how you got to where you are now. Go, Andy, take it over. Thank you so much, Tilly. Lovely to lovely to talk with you. Well, really, my story is a story of, of two halves or two parts. Um, the first part uh, is quite harrowing in some ways, um, was fairly full-on and fairly traumatic. The second part, probably to your listeners, will seem less harrowing, but for me, it was quite devastating, as the story will unfold. So I grew up with a belief that when I had a wife and a child and a nice car and lived in a nice house with a good salary, that I would be happy. And I achieved all those things. In my early 20s, there I found myself with a wife with a young daughter, with a job as a general manager of a leisure company, managing pubs and nightclubs and restaurants, company car, company house, big salary. But I was miserable. I was so, so stressed. I was so unhappy. Uh, It all seemed to be work, 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 and just no fun. And something inside of me said, there's gotta be something different. There's gotta be something different to life than this. And, They have that phrase, be careful what you wish for, because change came upon me. Uh, My daughter, Lara, she had a bad reaction to the whooping cough vaccine, and shortly after that had a very long seizure lasting 45 minutes. That ended her up in hospital. Uh, A few weeks later, she had another long seizure that ended her up in hospital. Then the doctor said, we need to put her on some anticonvulsant medicine. That made her seizures even worse. So she got to a point where she was sometimes having 20, 40 seizures a day. When she was 18 months old, having tried various different anticonvulsant medications, all of which appeared to make her worse, she had a four and a half hour seizure. And before that, she could talk and after that she was brain damaged and she lost all her speech and had severe learning disability and um, and autism and so on like I say very full-on and harrowing (laughs) and me as a young man in my 20s was like what what is going on here 
Um, this obviously impacted on my work, it impacted on my relationship, and well, I think I, when Lara was about two, I lost my job. Basically, I was spending too much time concentrating on, on medical crises. And so I lost my company car, I was evicted from my company house, um, my massive salary went, and shortly after that my marriage broke up and I became a single parent living in council emergency accommodation, thinking, what is going on? When Lara was three, we had discussions with the doctors and said, look, these medications don't seem to be making Lara any better, um, we think it would be worth trying to wean her off of them and see what happens. So the doctors reluctantly agreed and we weaned her off of her medication and her fits improved dramatically. She stopped having long seizures. She still had quite a lot of seizures, but she stopped having long seizures. After that, the doctors said, well, we think it was probably the right decision to take Lara off her medication, but if you're not going to accept our medication, there's nothing we can really do for you. There's no help we can offer you. And to be perfectly honest, given the level of epilepsy that your daughter has, she's probably only going to live the next couple of years. So we don't expect her to go beyond five. So I suggest you go home and enjoy the rest of the time you've got with her. And I was like, whoa! <laughs> so that just didn't feel right at all. So that's what really, having turned my whole life upside down, started me on my path of looking for a way to cure Lara, looking for a way to bring my daughter back, you know, my daughter who had disappeared. I looked at all of the different healing modalities across the world and traditional Chinese medicine seemed to be the most authentic and seemed to have a very long history. So I studied traditional Chinese medicine, qualified as an acupuncturist and then got into um, macrobiotics, which is a fairly extreme oriental way of eating that Lara really responded well to and her health improved. She still had epilepsy, she still had a learning disability, but her health improved, my health improved, and well, I was just on my path learning and looking for answers. And then we move forward to when Lara was 23. And at the age of 23, we saw a neurologist who said, I've been speaking to a colleague who thinks your daughter might have something called Dravet syndrome. And I kind of went, never heard of that. He said, yes, it's a genetic thing and it would be worth getting you and um, your ex-wife tested to, to check that out. So they tested Lara, they tested us, neither of us had the gene, but Lara had the mutated gene. And they said, well, she'd had it since birth. So then I went onto Dravet website, um, I, in Australia actually, because they've got a big organisation there. Dravet syndrome is described as catastrophic epilepsy. Um, and it turns out that there's a whole load of anticonvulsant medications that make kids with Dravet syndrome worse. They were all the ones Lara had. But the first case history I read was like Lara's story. It was almost exactly the same. And it made me suddenly realise that it wasn't really the whooping cough vaccine that made Lara like it was. It wasn't really the wrong anticonvulsant medications that made Lara like she was. It was because she had Dravet syndrome. And almost no matter what I would have done, 
it would have turned out the same because the pattern of how this disease progresses tends to be very, very similar. So I suddenly realised that in many ways my mission to cure Lara had been complete illusion. And my thoughts of if only Lara hadn't had the whooping cough vaccine, if only she hadn't had the medications, if only this, if only that, her life would be different. And actually I realised that's not the case. Actually, Lara's life was pretty much set. And with it, in many ways, my path was set. And so I've realized now, all these years later, that really that journey was in many ways unavoidable because I had the things I needed to learn. I had the things I needed to let go of. And so it turned out the way it needed to turn out. Life never turns out the way you think it should. It always turns out somehow different how you find yourself. But I've realized that that's the path and it's the path that's important. Mm. Yeah, and you learned so much on that path. I mean, Lara's taught you so much that you've then taught a lot of other people. Yeah, she's, she's given my life meaning. Yeah. And, uh, and she has profoundly influenced all sorts of people. You know, the carers that have worked with her over the years um, have found her a revelation to work with she's taught them so much and she yet yeah, she's put me on my path but what I was doing is I was looking externally I was looking outside of myself for answers I was looking at acupuncture which was great I looked at meditation and tai chi I've been practicing tai chi for over 30 years done me no end of good yeah but it's actually looking inside where you end up finding the answers because you know, in this current situation, you know, I think there'll be a lot of people who will be in a situation where they say, if only COVID hadn't have happened, then my life would be okay. My life would be different. Mm. But actually, with or without COVID, we have the things we have to deal with. Mm. It doesn't really matter where you go in the world, how rich you are, how poor you are, whether you're famous or whether you're not famous, you take your stuff with you until you work through it. Yeah, I, I know that you talk about your relationship being with yourself and with other people, our human relationships as being the most important thing to learn, to develop. Yeah, I have this belief that we hold all of the stuff we need to learn from inside of us and situations gradually bring stuff to the surface. And sometimes it comes to the surface uh, slowly and sometimes it comes to the surface all at once. And certainly I think COVID has brought a lot of stuff up to the surface. But that's then for us to deal with, for us to work with. And it's how we work with that stuff. You know, young people going to university and the young people at school, I think some of them are going to have a really challenging time. But that's part of their path. Yeah. And what we have to learn to do is we have to learn to be flexible, to not resist the lessons that life is bringing us, to not say, if only this hadn't have happened or if only that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be feeling like I am. Well, how we feel is really the sum total of what we're carrying inside of us. It's not really down to what happens outside of us. That just brings those feelings up to the surface. I was reading one of your books last night, uh, the Zen arts that you wrote. Like, I mean, it must have been a long time ago, but there was this one bit that you were talking about having the pebble in the hand and 
you know, about letting things go. Yes, it's that idea of, of it sounds contradictory, uh, Zen is full of contradictions, that idea of I hold nothing and I let nothing go. So I don't accept things and I don't reject things, I just let everything rest in the palm of my hand. Often the analogy I give is if you hold a pebble in your fist and you hold your fist with the palm downwards, if you let go of the pebble, it falls on the floor. And we have this fear of loss, that's why we hold on to things. But actually when you turn your palm the other way up and you open your palm, the pebble stays in the palm of your hand. And now it's free to come and go as it needs to. And I think when we hold on to things, we actually restrict ourselves from having new experiences. Relationships. I, I do my very best to hold my lovely wife in the palm of my hand, to let her come and go in her life, to let her do the things that she wants to do without holding on to her and saying, oh, but I need you. Or, who's going to make my tea? Or, or who's going to be there when I'm feeling bad? I just allow her to flow in and out. And because I give her that freedom, actually, I find she's with me pretty much all of the time, <laughs> which is lovely. <laughs> Another thing that I read as well in one of your books, which um, the Blissology book that I love, was about the, these emotional peptides which go into the receptors on your cells of emotions. And all the cells have different receptors for different emotions and different things that come in. And I know with the viruses now, they're talking about it has to be a certain receptor for a virus. So we have these receptors that accept these emotional feelings. And if you don't process those emotional feelings, those peptides get stuck in your body. So like feeling bad, feeling resentment, feeling sadness, trauma that you haven't processed actually can make you unwell. Well, I, most definitely. And, and what I think holding these, these emotions inside of us, holding these peptides, uh, they actually stop us from feeling those positive emotions. It's almost like the receptors are blocked with these peptides from negative emotions. And until we actually let them go, then we can't embrace those positive emotions. Uh, but one of the really interesting is a, it's a great analogy that I, um, that Andy Puddlestone, Headspace, um, yes. it's, a, it's a great meditation app um, he talks about this idea of the blue sky and that the blue sky just looks wonderful and sometimes our lives are a little bit our mind is a little bit like the blue sky and there's clouds that come across it and as long as they're fluffy clouds then we don't worry but sometimes that blue sky gets completely covered in clouds so much that we can't see it Sometimes we might even think there's a storm coming or a hurricane. But when we actually go in a plane and up through the clouds, that blue sky is always there. Mm -hmm. And that's really how we are fundamentally. We are calm, blissful, expansive human beings. That's what we're born like. Provided yeah. a baby is fed and watered and changed, it is in this wonderful, calm, expansive, curious state of mind. And then those emotions get laid across the front of it. And so as we work through these things, as we allow these clouds or these peptides to be released, what we find behind is this calm, clear, blue, expansive consciousness on which it's like a blank canvas on which we can paint our lives. But first, we have to kind of clear the clouds. Yeah, yeah. And I loved as well, in your book, you explained how 
Is it in within 14 days you can create these new neural pathways? So if you start feeling good or doing something new? Yes, it, the wonderful thing is that our brains are plastic. That means they're moldable. Although the human brain tends to finish its development in the first sort of 30, 32 years of life, actually that idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks is complete rubbish. We can learn new things and create new neural pathways at any time in our life. In our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even beyond 100, we can still learn new stuff. And so, so often, if you want to change your life, it's making those little small changes consistently that make the difference. And like you say, 14 days isn't a very long time. But actually also to be consistent, it yeah. can be quite a long time. So I advise people to do something that feels really achievable. So quite often I will say to somebody when their life is in chaos, I'll say, can you spare 12 minutes a day? And most people say, yeah, I could spare 12 minutes a day. So I say, okay, find a meditation app, Headspace, Putty Bamboo, or there's lots of them on, on. And most of them will do something like a 10 minute, 12 minute meditation. Do that every day for 14 days and you will notice a change. My old acupuncture teacher had a great cure for a lot of depression. He said it didn't work for everybody. He said, but certainly it had a significant consciousness altering effect on people. And what he got his patients to do when they came to him with depression is he got them to witness the sunrise for 14 days running. Oh, wow. And he said, you could not fail to be moved emotionally and in your consciousness by witnessing the birth of a new day for 14 days consistently. So if you want to change your life, it's making a small change and then making another small change and then making another small change that tends to make the greatest difference because they are changes that you can hold, that you can move forward with. Changing your diet radically, you know, and people do, people go on all sorts of fatty diets. Often they're really unachievable in the long term. It'd be much better to say, well, maybe I'll cut down on my sugar. Maybe I'll try and eat a bit more fruit as a way of starting. Or else we end up feeling overwhelmed and say, oh, I just can't do it. And we go back to our default again. Okay, yeah. So it's, and then with the, with the stuck peptides, how do you, do they just go or do you need to process them? Or how does... Well, how does really, what you need to do is you just need to trust your path and have an intent that you want to you want to feel better you want to be releasing this stuff that doesn't feel good so that there's space in your life for things that do feel good and then your circumstances of life will then bring things up to the surface at a nice steady rate and all we need to do is to look inside say how am i feeling and what's this making me feel and where do these feelings come from so often we blame others for how we feel yeah you know, we say i'm upset because you said this or i'm upset because you did that but actually i realized some years ago now that we carry upset inside of us and other people bring it to the surface they don't really upset us and 
Why I say that is because when I am feeling really good, when I am relaxed and life is great and everything is wonderful, it doesn't really matter what you say to me. You can say something nice, you can say something nice. I don't really bother. Yeah. However, when I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed with life or I'm feeling a bit anxious or I'm feeling a bit angry and you say something to me, it could be something really innocuous that pushes my button, brings my anger up to the surface, and then suddenly I'm falling out with you. But actually, I really fell out with myself. I had that anger inside of me, and that's what I've got to deal with. I've not got to change you to make sure you don't upset me. I've got to change myself. Now, in my personal relationship with my lovely wife, Debbie, who is Brazilian and I'm English. So there have been many times where it's a little bit of a clash of cultures because we see the world differently. <laughs> I had this realization that when I am feeling good, I love Debbie unconditionally. Doesn't matter what she does, doesn't matter if she's doing something I like or if she's doing something that I find mildly irritating. When I'm in a good space, I just love her. So then I realized that if I fell out with her, no matter what she'd done, even if she'd done something that I thought was completely out of order, actually the only reason I was upset with her was because actually I was upset inside of myself and it was bringing something up to the surface. Mm. So then what I did is I decided whenever I was upset with Debbie, I would go for a walk in the woods and I would not come back until I loved her unconditionally. And I don't know what it's like for women, but as a man, there is nothing like tiredness and hunger to get you to let go of it. <laughs> Eventually, you know, after two hours of walking around the woods, seething and... I'd get, well, I'm feeling a bit tired now. Yeah. But I, no, I still don't want to forgive her. So I'd walk for another hour and I'd go, no, no, I'm really tired and I'm really hungry. I've just got to let it go or else I'm going to be all night in the woods feeling terrible. Yeah. So I just let it go. So it made me realise that we are responsible for how we feel mm. and life and our life circumstances just facilitate those feelings coming to the surface for us to have a look at. So in a way, you could look at it as a bonus if someone says something to you and you feel annoyed because actually it's giving you the opportunity to have a look at what's going on. They've done you a huge yeah. favour. Yeah, I have, lots of people don't, don't see it that way, but that is actually the truth. When people upset you, they give you an opportunity to release upset that you might have been carrying from childhood. Yeah. And you can be a freer person as a result. It's that great illusion that sometimes what we think is bad actually turns out to be good, and sometimes what we think is good actually turns out to be bad. Yeah. And so we can't really judge when things are good or bad. Yeah. It's more the attachment that we put onto the circumstances that is good or bad, isn't it? That's the kind of... Yes, well, that, that's tied into to what is commonly called the ego. And my, um, my expression for the ego, the three, three words, expectation, guilt, obsession, E-G-O. So expectation. We put unreasonable expectation on ourselves and we put very unreasonable expectation on other people. We expect them to understand how we're feeling. 
We expect them to know when we're upset and to know when we're relaxed so that they are nice to us when we're upset <laughs> and, and let their stuff out when we're relaxed. So we put expectation and people always let us down because, well, they're always inside their own heads dealing with their own stuff. And we're always inside our own heads dealing with our own stuff. So we put expectation on ourselves or on other people and it's unfulfilled and then there's guilt. If we haven't fulfilled our expectations, then we feel bad about it. If other people haven't fulfilled the expectations that we've put upon them, then they are guilty in our minds of doing terrible things to us. And then comes the worst thing, the obsession, where we just can't let it go. And then we go round and round in that circle. But if we can actually stop externalising, take a few deep, calming breaths and just say well I wonder what it would be like actually if I let that thing go if I didn't think that was important if I actually thought that was unimportant if I realized that that wasn't where the truth is and that the truth is with how I'm feeling and with what's going on inside of me rather than what's going on outside of me that becomes a revelation when you realize that other people only bring your upset up to the surface then everybody you meet is a facilitator for your spiritual growth and the more challenging people are then the greater spiritual growth you can have I always say that I'm good with tricky people so I that must have done me a lot of good (laughs) most definitely and it keeps you flexible and it keeps you adaptable the one thing we need to be in these current times is flexible because we don't know where the future's heading and it's that analogy of of the oak tree is wonderfully strong and you can look at it in the forest and admire it and think god what a magnificent tree and you probably wouldn't notice the little sapling at your feet however when a storm comes that oak tree is likely to have limbs unceremoniously ripped off and if the storm is too great that oak tree will be uprooted and will probably die The little sapling, on the other hand, is weak but flexible. It just bends with the storm. It just agrees with the storm. It doesn't resist it, doesn't try and fight it, and it just lays down in the strong winds. But when the storm is over, up it pops again and carries on growing. And a lot of people, I think, are in a perfect storm at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's not only what's been going on in their personal lives, but there's all this craziness in the world as well. And if we try and resist it, if we try and get in this place of, this isn't right, and this isn't fair, and this shouldn't be happening to me, and if only COVID hadn't been here, then we're in that place of resistance. And like the Buddhists say, see how we cause ourselves to suffer by resisting what is. Covid is what is. Mm. Turmoil in our lives is what is. For lots of people, loss of income, maybe loss of job, it is what is. Mm. And you can resist it, but the longer you resist it, the more you'll be stuck in that difficult place. And somehow you have to say, how can I bend with this? Mm. It's that wonderful Taoist phrase of woo-wee, which means go with the flow. It means just allow yourself to be taken by the waters of life and see where it ends you up. Mm. If you let go of the oars in your boat and stop rowing upstream and just allow the waters of life to take you, they will take you eventually to somewhere that's calmer. Yeah, and it's amazing how it makes you have to 
do the I mean the day at a time is actually the AA thing isn't it but like you know I think in one of your books you talked about the Buddhist monk saying what's important in life and he's like attention 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 so like being present in the moment because you can't we don't know what's going to happen in the future so you can't actually be thinking well I'm going to be doing this for Christmas and I'm getting on this holiday and my kids are going there because actually we don't even we don't really know more than two weeks ahead right now but it's actually in a way quite relaxing because you I, can just be like right here right now I didn't actually know 30 minutes ago what I was going to be talking about <laughs> really <laughs> you know because it goes it goes where it goes but you are so right Tilly this idea of living in the present the here and now is the only place where we can effect change and if we want change in the world we are the change and it's only by living in the here and now and working with whatever life is showing us that we can actually manage to to change and to grow and to move forward so often people live in in what the Taoists call what if what if this happens? What if that happens? We try to predict the future, but actually we are always wrong because when you play that what if game, you are predicting the future based on your experiences of the past. And if that what if is dark, and it usually is, then you are actually predicting the future based on your bad experiences of the past. It does not allow for the unexpected, does not allow for what you haven't experienced because you don't know about it. And so what you are really doing is you are living in your imagination. You're living in your own nightmare by projecting those ideas forward. And of course, when difficulties do come and we never know when they come, the one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to be upset and tight and stressed and anxious when it happens because that stops us being flexible. So it's much better to live as if all is well, as if I am going to be fine. I'm going to come out of this because I've always come through every difficulty life has shown me. So why shouldn't be this be any different? And to live as if all is well then you tend to be more relaxed. You tend not to be resisting what life is getting you to work with. And when those unexpected things do happen, you are relaxed enough to be flexible and adaptable. Yeah. That's the key. This living in what if or if only is locked in the past and the future. Oh. And it's only the here and now that we can make a difference. I remember talking to you about things that I hadn't been able to work out how I was going to sort them out and you were like you're never going to be able to work out that problem with this mind of distress narrowing down because you're stressed out so all you can think about is the problem and actually the best thing you used to say to me is just like stop doing that go and have a cup of tea go and have a cake or just go and relax and do go for a walk because with that mind you'll find the solution and I think that that's been an amazing bit of guidance that you shared with me. Well, every solution in my life has come in a really unexpected way, often a really shocking way that I just did not see coming in any any shape or form. So this idea of trying to work out how we are going to get from A to B is pointless because we don't know what we're going to encounter on the journey. So the moment we take the first step 
on that journey, whatever we have imagined has isn't really going to happen in that way. So what I do now and what I recommend is actually you ask a question and then you let the answer come and find you. So I don't know how I'm going to do something. So all I do is I say, I wonder how that's going to happen. And then I forget about it. And then the how reveals itself. Mm -hmm. Again, if you try and work out the how from your past experiences that have often been topsy-turvy and quite <laughs> difficult and challenging, then you are creating a how in the future that is just going to be a mirror image of that. And it doesn't allow for those wonderful, unexpected connections that we make. Yeah. You know, how we meet people is often really unexpected. Now, how did I get into macrobiotics? Well, my wife went to see somebody who did radionics, a medical dowser, who had a daughter who heard about me doing acupuncture, who came to me as an acupuncture patient, who then had a boyfriend who <laughs> lived up in Liverpool, who was into macrobiotics, who came down and we met. And, you know, how could I predict that? It's completely unpredictable. But... That's how it works. And so when you live in the present and when you trust your path, and that's the real, that's the real antidote to fear of the future, is trusting your path, trusting that actually if you don't resist, you'll be guided to a better and more expansive place with every step that you take. That's the most important thing of all, isn't it? Yeah, trusting your path, Trust. trusting yourself, yeah. not saying, well, actually, I think my path should be going down there. Yeah. And the circumstances of the, of the world have blocked that path. Yeah, that's no. Yeah. If you thought you were meant to be going down there and the circumstances of the world have blocked that path, then you were probably mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And much better to realize you're rubbish at predicting the future. So don't do it. Yeah. And just stay in the here and now and allow the unexpected to come and surprise you. We're just interrupting this episode to bring you a short message from a wonderful charity that we're supporting. I am really happy to say that this podcast is working with the Cross River Gorilla Project to raise awareness of the critically endangered Cross River Gorilla and support the local rainforest communities. With only about 300 of these great apes remaining in the world, this comes at a crucial time. The Cross River Gorilla Project would love you to sign up to their website, which is free, and help share their story. You can also follow them on Instagram at Cross River Gorilla and see how you can make a difference. The other amazing thing I remember you teaching me was about stress and like recognizing when you're stressed. Because I think for me, I, I was going through a busy, stressful time and I kept getting this really dry mouth and I couldn't understand. Like It was like very thirsty, but it wasn't thirst quenching. And I remember you telling me that actually, you're so stressed, your body's trying to give you a sign. And if you ignore that sign, then you'll get a worse sign and a bigger sign and a bigger sign. Yep, that's, ex that's exactly right. The body never, ever works against you in, from my perspective. It always does the very best given the circumstances that it is presented with. And so your body wants to help you on your journey and your body wants to help you to expand spiritually because it's good for the body to be connected to a mind that's spiritually expansive. So you get guided. And when you slightly go off your path and you start to get into a place of illusion, your body will give you a little nudge. 
and then it will give you a stronger nudge and then it will give you a stronger nudge until it ends up having to give you a nudge that's so strong you have to stop you get ill and you can have to stop what you're doing and let go of everything and then just think about where you've gone on your path mm. and i say to people people who often get into a regular crisis through stress you know be it panic attacks anxiety what i say is that in my experience there are probably five signs your body gives you before you actually get into that place of, of panic yeah. and if you can go back in your in your self-awareness and just again open your mind to say i wonder what those steps are i wonder what happens to me before i have a panic attack mm -hmm. and i wonder what happens to me before that and you may well find that actually you get to a place where you just get a slight bit of stiffness in your neck and you go ah that's my body telling me that if i don't listen to it i'm going to go on step two three four and five and step five is a panic attack yeah. so i am going to now listen and i'm going to say hang on a minute i may have taken a wrong turn here or i may be heading somewhere that isn't good for me mm -hmm. and so you take a few breaths and you reassess the thing I love about meditation is it gives you a moment to stop. Mm. And what we really need to do in our lives is we need to regularly stop and take at least three deep breaths mm. rather than keep going from one thing to another. I have learnt over the years this idea of stopping and just allowing things to percolate for a little while before making a decision especially if that decision is to press send. <laughs> yeah. The number of times early on in my life <laughs> where I was really stressed or really anxious or it felt really important to do something and I wrote a really emotive email and pressed send immediately because it was really important to, I'm the change and I need to effect change outside. And then 24 hours later going, I really wish I hadn't said that. Yeah. That really wasn't a sensible thing to do. So now what I've learned is when I feel that emotion coming up in me, what I do is I write the email and I save it in drafts. Mm. That's what I do now. And then I go and sleep on it. And having slept on it, then I have a look at it. And it may be the next day I also go, no, I'm still feeling emotional, so I'll leave it in drafts. It's only when I can look at it and go, actually, that's not bringing up any emotion anymore. That's me just saying my truth. And then I know it's safe to send. But usually by that time, there's been a whole load of stuff that's been deleted out of it yeah. that really wasn't appropriate or necessary for, for me to say. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to take actions on negative emotional feelings basically well that they're they're always going to land you a bit more in your stuff they're always going to make things a little bit more complicated yeah. rather than a little bit less complicated yeah. and because again what you're trying to do there is you're trying to effect change in the world about you through an action yeah. and what you really want to do to effect change in the world is to change yourself you know, if you if you want to change your kids, you know, if you feel like your kids are not on the right path and you want to change them, do not say to them, you're not on the right path. You need to change. You need to go on this path. First of all, you're almost certainly wrong about the path they need to go on. <laughs> but also, none of us like being told what to do. So if you see your 
child, for instance, your son or your daughter, isn't really taking personal responsibility for their emotions, then the best way to help them is to do what the Orientals call teaching from behind. You embody the lesson that you see they need. So if you see that they need to own their emotions, then you need to own your emotions. And you teach by example. You know, if you see somebody is upset, the very worst thing you can do is grab hold of them, give them a good shake and say, for goodness sake, calm down. <laughs> if they're upset, they're looking for calmness. So the very best thing to do is to embody calmness. Mm -hmm. You know, if those people around you, you feel they need to change for their own benefit, then you embody the change yourself. And then that gives them the opportunity to experience that change and then to make the decision for themselves and by themselves if they want to effect that change in their own lives. Yeah, because I think that's so uh, so interesting, especially with teenagers. Like, teenagers often, it's a whole different parenting thing that I found, but they often say things that might suddenly upset you or hurt you, and it's quite easy to then go, oh, you're just being a brat, or you're just, you know, why are you being so selfish or whatever. But it's, So it's quite easy to kind of hit back at something there. But actually, to, so you have to take a step back from that and then think about why that's upset you and why you think that they're sounding like a brat. It's normally something that you feel are wrong about, that that's why, and that's why it's upset you. Because if they hadn't said something to upset you, then there wouldn't be an issue. But it's funny, there's like these kind of, there are things that kind of challenge you a little bit with teenagers because they are very sensitive and they are just kind of saying things. So I know, I know you've given me some advice on teenage parenting, which I hope I've used. Yeah, I, the really big thing is don't take it personally. Yes. Don't take anything they say personally. Even if it's directed at you, even if they turn around and say, I hate you, I wish you were dead, don't take it personally. Because the one thing, the one amazing thing that my daughter taught me was that all behaviour is communication. And so often what we do is we look at the behaviour and we judge the behaviour and in doing so we miss the communication. Mm, yeah. So often... When we say something about other people, we're really talking about ourselves. So how much we can love people is really dependent on how much we love ourselves. The depth of love we have for ourselves dictates the depth of love we can experience with other people. But it's also the same with emotions. So if I say to you, Tilly, I hate you. What I am really saying is, Tilly, I hate myself. Mm. And so if you can actually manage to not take things personally and actually take that step back and think about what is the communication. Mm. So often what teenagers are saying is, I'm confused, I hate myself, I don't know where my life is going, I need, I just want some help, some love, some support, something, just... Mm. and. In those words, if they said it to us like that, we'd probably go, yeah, sure, what can I do? Mm. But they don't communicate like that because they are full of all this turmoil. So what comes out is, I hate you, I wish you were dead. Mm. And what they're really saying is, I'm in trouble, help. Mm. 
And when you don't take it personally, then you can be that help. And so often that help is just holding the space. It's not trying to fix them. It's not trying to teach them how to love themselves. It's not saying, well, I've learned over the years that if you don't eat quite so much sugar, then you don't have these anxiety attacks like you do. And so it's actually just holding the space. And if they want to know how you have helped yourself on the path, then they will ask at the right time. They'll say, Mum, how come you're so chilled? How come when I tell you I hate you, you don't actually take it personally? How do you do that? Yeah, so it's about listening. It's about listening and it's it's about looking for the energy behind the words. Yeah. It's the energy behind the words where you will find the truth. You will not find the truth in the words that they say. Because of, of course, you know, if your son said to you, Mum, I wish you were dead. And I said, OK, here's a gun, bang. There you go. I've sorted her out for you. I don't think you'd be very happy with me. You certainly wouldn't be very happy with me. Yeah. Yeah, So you cannot believe the words. And this is so often what we do is we listen to the words rather than understanding that the words are trying to communicate a feeling. And it's that feeling that is the important thing, not the words. Yeah. And um, I loved another thing that you taught me about not with teenagers being able to create a dictatorship where where it would be quite easy to go, well, if you won't go off your phone, I'm going to stop paying your phone bill. Or it's my house, so I want you to come in at this time and da-da-da, you know. Or you can go and live somewhere else, something like that. Like, that doesn't work as a parenting Threatening, technique, it, yeah, Threatening is not a good <laughs> technique to be parenting with uh, because it can tend to make children quite deceptive, yeah. you know, and quite secretive. But also, parents tend to be habitual liars when it comes to threatening. Yeah, yeah. The number of times you, you, you might hear a parent say, do that one more time and you'll go to your room. I said, do that one more time and you'll go to your room. Sweetheart, will you have a word with him because I've spoken to him three times now and he's still doing it. What is actually coming out of your mouth is just a lie. After another lie, after another lie. So if you are going to threaten your children, which I don't advise, then you have to fulfil those threats. Or else it's just illusion. It's just it's just lies and deceit. You're deceiving yourselves and you're deceiving your kids. Mm. So you've got to be very, very careful if you are going to threaten your kids with, with reprisals. You've got to be really careful what you threaten them with yeah. because you want to be able to fulfil that. So if you say, if you don't get off your phone, I am going to... Put it on the floor and stamp on it and throw it in the bin and I am never going to buy you another another one. Then that has to be your truth. Yeah. It's not what I recommend though. Yeah. What I recommend is that, again, you look at teaching from behind. Mm. So you say, okay, I'm going to put my phone down. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make sure that actually after a certain time, I don't pick my phone up. Yeah. It's quite difficult. Yeah. It's really quite difficult. If you think your children should not have the phone after 6pm, then you need to live by the same rules or else it's hypocrisy. It's, It's don't do as I do, do as I say.
Yeah, which no one ever did. No, I know. I mean, the 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 two phrases I remember from my childhood that really got under my skin, one was, don't do as I do, do as I say. And the other one was, because. Mm. God, that's annoying. That's like, you know, why do I have to do this? Because. Because what? Because I said so. There's no intelligence behind that, is there? No, not, not at all. Not you at can't all. Get anything from that. It's just a dictatorship. Uh, but that's how, that's how our ancestors were. Yeah, and we should not judge our ancestors. Mm. We should not judge how um, our parents and our grandparents um, did their parenting mm. because they lived through some deeply challenging times. Mm. You know. Our grandparents, most of them, I think, lived through the wars. And war is a deeply terrifying, horrible place to be. Mm. You know, far worse than COVID. Far, far worse than COVID. I remember talking to my mum about her experiences of the war and her saying that, yeah, they'd go to school and the next day some of the desks would be empty. And they'd say, oh yeah, their house got bombed. You know, and parents who lost all of their children, you know, or parents who lost most of their children or wives who lost their husbands and were left single parents Mm. trying to trying to survive. You know, that level of intensity made for a very, very challenging life. Mm. And we we're worried that our parents were a bit strict. We're worried that, you know... They didn't have time to explain why they just said because. Exactly, (laughs) you know, and how fearful they were. You know, their level of anxiety, the the past anxiety and pain they have to deal with is often so, so much more than we'll ever have to experience in our lives. So we have to have a bit of compassion for them, cut them a bit of slack, but at the same time realise there are more progressive ways, there are more expansive ways in which we can communicate with our children. But you have to lead by example. You have to, whatever you are going to advise your children has to come from a place of your own truth. Yeah, I, I know. And I remember you saying that you're either, if you're making demands, you're either the children are either going to become submissive or like you said before secretive and actually you don't want a secret um a submissive character do you? you don't want to be so you don't want your child to be someone that goes okay then okay then okay then because actually that's that's not a good way to be as an adult it's so neither of those not yet neither of those ways that there, there is a there is a middle way yeah. you know you don't want to bully and force your way through life and at the same time you don't want to surrender you just want to kind of just walk your path Mm. take that middle road and just walk your path live in the present deal with what you've got to deal with Mm. have your dreams it's perfectly good to have dreams it's perfectly good to have visions for where you want to be how you want to be feeling Mm. but i wouldn't make those visions too specific because the more specific they are, the more they are a recreation of your past rather than the walking into an expansive, exciting new future. Well, that's interesting, though, because the old ideology of visualisation was about making very clear visuals of what you wanted. But actually, you're saying that is a little bit limited, actually. I, I believe so, because... Because like I say, you are basing your visions 
on what's happened so far, it doesn't allow for the unexpected. Mm. For things you have not yet experienced, for people you haven't yet met, Mm. who may well completely change your life, who may teach you a lesson that you haven't learnt yet. So how can you visualise a future where you've learnt something from a place of... Yeah. You know, it would be like me saying to my 10-year-old grandson, right, I want you to imagine what life is like when you've passed your A-level maths. Because mm. you're good at maths. He is good at maths. Mm. But, you know, it's impossible for him to do. And the journey there is completely unpredictable. Yeah. And he might not even get there. Yeah. You know, I, when I was young, what I wanted to be was a doctor. Yeah. And... Uh, I started studying science subjects because I was told what you need to do is you need to get a medical degree to be a doctor. And so you've got to study the sciences and then you've got a university. Well, my life collapsed quite early on before I could actually manage to fulfill that. And during the process of growth, I ended up doctoring myself. I ended up working on my own mental health problems, on my own physical problems, and learning a whole load of healing modalities, Mm. now I actually, that's what I do. I help people to Mm. get better, to be more comfortable with themselves. And so I've ended up doing what I wanted to do in a way that is really fulfilling. Mm. I've met a few GPs, and generally they are not particularly happy people. Mm. They are very overworked under-resourced with tools that don't actually necessarily do the job they want it to. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah, you have, you're right, you have actually created your dream life, but it wasn't what you, well, thought it would be. It's completely different, but it's much better, like you said. Yeah, I mean, when I was a young lad, you know, I think I think the first time I was asked about um, being being or said about being a doctor, I think I was about ten years old. So uh, I had no real idea even what a doctor was then, apart from my GP. I just had this sense that I wanted to help people. Yeah. And that was my strong sense that I wanted to help people. And the universe answered by saying, first of all, you've got to spend some years helping yourself because you're yeah. a bit of a mess, son. You know, I had to to sort myself out and do some work on myself before I could then help other people to work on themselves. And it ties back into what you were saying a little while ago. So many people are on their journey to try and realise the God or Goddess within. Mm. And I've realised that I'm on a journey to embrace my humanness. Mm. And that feels like the most important journey because... If I actually manage to claim my Godhead, if I actually manage to become like a God, the moment I do, I have separated myself from every human being on the planet. Because they're all humans and I'm a God. But when I actually can say, I'm a bit of a messed up human being, Mm -hmm. I had a tricky childhood, my 20s were even trickier, my 30s, 40s have been kind of interesting as well, but I'm working with the stuff, I'm learning to kind of manage my emotions then I can connect with everybody yeah you know if I say to people oh I meditated for an hour every day for 10 years and now I'm free from anger (laughs) well then what I've done is I created separation yeah when I say to somebody I still get angry 
That's the great thing I have in common with the Dalai Lama. I saw an interview with the Dalai Lama and he said the one emotion he still has to deal with is anger. And it was like, oh, that's such a relief. Because <laughs> I thought I had to be free of it. And actually, no, it's something you just have to work with. These emotions are for us to work with and learn from. Yeah. And I think when we're free of them is probably when we're actually free of life and we're not yeah. on the planet anymore. Yeah. And actually, I remember talking to you about using them in a in a positive way like i remember used to, and anger specifically you were like you know what anger when it's bad you know used negatively can be quite destructive i expect but if you use it you it's when you step into your power so yeah like you're like actually no that's not acceptable i'm not accepting that i'm angry but i'm not so that's a positive way to use those emotions, right? Yeah, one of the great things that, that anger does is it is it readdresses the balance. Mm-hmm. You know, when things have got out of balance, when somehow life has come upon us too too strongly, or we feel people are dominating us, or life is dominating us, anger is a way of saying, ah, enough. Mm. But then the idea is to then look inside and say, how can I effect change? Mm. not I'm angry at you and you need to change in order for me to stop being angry yes that's a good very good point because that could have been misread exactly yeah. exactly so it's I am angry because somehow my life doesn't feel in balance anymore mm. I feel like somehow I've stepped away from a place that felt where I felt mm. some kind of connection and you look for that. And anger will give you the energy to do it. The great thing after anger, if you actually manage to work with it, comes determination. Determination is that tenacity, mm-hmm. that ability to stick to the task. You know, so often people will go through their lives being angry and, and being upset at life until they get to a point where they truly say, I've had enough. I want something different. Mm-hmm. And the moment you say, I want something different, you open up your consciousness to a whole lot of new experience. Mm -hmm. And then again, you've just got to trust the path. And the path will take you somewhere different. Mm -hmm. Like I say, for me, I said I wanted something different. And it took me from being um, a general manager, managing pubs, nightclubs and restaurants, to going on this crazy, crazy journey where I thought I was going to be curing my daughter. And actually, that wasn't the point. I was curing myself um, to a point now where I can do lots of work helping other people, which feels hugely rewarding. If I hadn't have taken that turn I would probably be dead now because when I was working in that industry I was three stone heavier I was drinking alcohol every day I was smoking copious amounts of Benson and Hedges (laughs) every day because it was the only way I could actually cope with the atmosphere when I first worked in pubs and nightclubs I couldn't cope with the smoke Right. Because in those days, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, in the good old days, you could smoke inside. And so you walked into a pub and it stank. And you came home and all your clothes stunk, you know, of of tobacco. You walked in a nightclub and it, it really attacked your eyes. So the only way I could work in that environment was to join them. So I smoked in that environment and I smoked a lot of Benson Hedges, drank a lot of alcohol. 
and I suspect that I would not be here, or if I was, I'd be a very, very poorly man. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you were talking about the gene that she had, because there's a lot of stuff now about gene expression, and we used to think, like, oh, my grandmother had breast cancer, I'm going to have that. You know, the, these genes are sort of hereditary. Oh, if you have alcoholism in your family, you're going to get alcoholism. But now they're looking at, actually, it's what you your lifestyle choices can activate and um, deactivate some of those genes. Do Most you think that's what happened with Lara, or was that a different gene? Well, um, I think with with I think we're all born with predispositions, mm. you know, with some genetic predispositions. Mm. Some of those are very strong, and some of those are not so strong. So uh, I think we can be predisposed towards asthma or cancer or so on, but how we live our lives dictates how those genes express themselves, whether those genes turn off or on. Mm. Lara, I think she was born with the Dravé syndrome gene turned on. And it took me 23 years to realise if I'd have known everything I know now right at the beginning, could I have turned that gene off? Possibly, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Mm. Maybe. But then I wouldn't be talking to you. Yeah. I wouldn't have had the experiences. I wouldn't have learned anything. Yeah. You know, the one thing that is really important for our children is for them to experience life. Because that's how they learn. You know, if you want your children to have the perfect life where everything is calm and wonderful, they're going to end up growing up to be old fools Mm. because they won't learn anything. It's when life is difficult. It's when life is challenging. When it takes those unexpected turns, that's an important part of what teaches us, Mm. of what allows us to grow as human beings and to go deeper inside ourselves and to release those things that don't feel good. Yeah. So what would you say when people say, oh, that's not, oh, that's so unfair, then, like, how, how is that? How could, I don't know why I wanted to ask you that. It's such a random question. It's a, it's a really good question. It's a really, really good question. Uh, it's this idea we have in the world of good and bad, right and wrong, fair and unfair. And, in fact, they are, to my mind, illusion. Because what is fair can become unfair. What is unfair can become fair. It really depends on how you look at life. And even then, you can't really make any sort of judgment. Because was it fair that I lost my job and I lost my company car and my house and my salary and my wife? Was that fair? Yeah, you would say no. That wasn't it didn't fair. feel fair at the time. No. It felt very unfair. Would I change it now? Definitely not, because it's the thing that put me on my path. Therefore, it was the fairest thing that could happen to me, because without all of that disaster, I would not be on my path. So what I thought was unfair actually turns out to be fair. And so I think the only time that life becomes um, unfair is when we feel powerless. And, of course, we are never powerless, provided we look inside of ourselves. It's only when we look outside that we feel pretty powerless. And then we say life is unfair. And what is fair? Mm. 
Yeah, I have met some people who have had what would appear to be very fair lives. They have been born into uh, an affluent family. They have gone to the best schools. They have had everything they wanted. They have gone on wonderful holidays, but they still have their stuff to deal with. Mm. And often, actually, the easier life has been during their childhood, the harder life is during their adulthood. I would much rather have a challenging childhood and have some stuff to work with through the early part of my life than to have an easy life and then to suddenly find difficulties in my in my 50s and 60s. I remember um, talking to somebody who had had a pretty unremarkable life. He was yeah, he was 60 when I when I spoke to him, but he'd had a relatively normal upbringing. He'd fallen in love in his early 20s, he'd got married, he had two children, his children were pretty okay, didn't cause many problems, he had a good job and then he gave that up because it didn't feel good and he did a different job and that all worked out fine and then when he was 60 suddenly his kidneys gave up and he was on dialysis. And when I spoke to him, he said, mm, life's not fair. Mm. That was his only conclusion. Because he felt powerless to be doing anything about it. Mm. But actually, when you looked at his life and how he'd lived his life, and especially the incredibly huge amounts of alcohol that mm -hmm. he had consumed during his adult life, you actually saw that his kidneys shutting down was actually probably really fair because with that amount of alcohol, it's a wonder he was still alive. Yeah. We need to be much more sovereign about ourselves and how we feel and what we eat. And that, that it, it's much more important than people kind of have led us, than we've been sort of taught. Yeah, and in the here and now. Mm. It's, we need yeah. to be sovereign in the here and now. We, it's no point in saying... I will sort myself out January the 1st. Yeah. You know, all right, New Year, New Year's resolution, I'm going to yeah. sort myself out. And yeah. before then, I'm going to do all the bad habits that I normally do. <laughs> because by the time that comes, we're so messed up and we're probably so ill by then that we don't have the energy to sort it out. Yeah. Now, this idea of, of always projecting into the future, I will be happy when. Yeah. I'll be happy when... I've got my dream job. I'll be happy when I'm in the perfect relationship. I'll be happy when I have kids. I'll be happy when I'm a grandparent. Yeah. If you talk like that, your happiness is always in the future and never in the here and now. And it will stay like that until you say to yourself, actually, despite everything that's going on, I'm going to seek to be happy now. Even in these difficult circumstances, even without my health being as amazing as I'd like it to be, even with all these emotional problems, even with all these difficulties of COVID or, or job loss or poverty, I am still going to seek happiness now rather than think it is somewhere in the future. Because if it's somewhere in the future, that's where it will stay. And we do not need a lack of challenges for us to be happy. You go to some of the poorest countries in the world and you will see children there who are happy mm. without toys, with only simple things that they've made from everyday stuff lying around them. 
and yet they have a level of happiness and a depth of happiness playing maybe with a stick and a stone than lots of modern children have playing with their Xbox and their PS4 and their computer and everything else. It goes back to what you said at the beginning about babies having this, being born with this bliss, in this blissful state, but then everything else goes, you know, on top of that. So that is our, like, it's the blue sky. That is how we should naturally feel anyway. Yeah, and anything to get that. And the really important thing about the baby is the baby is curious. Mm. If we lose our curiosity, then we lose life. You know, we have to be curious about how can I wonder how I can be happier. Mm. I wonder how my life could be better. Mm. I wonder what I need to let go of. Yeah, it's having those wonders. That curiosity that allows us to move forwards. Mm. It's when we lose our curiosity and we just get lost in the rhythm of our lives, going through the same routine day in, day out, with the same good or bad habits day in, day out, that there is no expansion. Curiosity looks for expansion. When we lose that curiosity, then we stop growing. When we get to, actually, this is as good as it gets. It's yeah. not going to get any better than this, so I might as well just learn to live with it and accept, you know, acceptance is the key, so I've heard. So, yeah, I will just accept my life like this and just try to be happy within it. And that's that's yeah. not where it's at. Yes, acceptance is the key, but then you need that curiosity. I accept where I am now, but I wonder how I can get somewhere radically different. Mm. Yeah. And that wondering then sets you somewhere amazing. Yeah. And and opens up endless possibilities, doesn't it, as well? Like endless possibilities, yeah. But going back to talking about about sort of stress, when we are stressed, we are always on the lookout for threats. Because we have that fight or flight response. Mm. And consequently, when you're on the lookout for threats, you can find them. They are everywhere. Mm. You know, even a house can be threatening. You know, you've got to watch that door over there. It's a bit low and you can bang your head. Mm. You look out for threats and you find them. When we're relaxed, we look for opportunities to expand our good feelings. Mm. And the world is filled with opportunities as well. It just depends what you tune into. And the more relaxed we are, the more curious we are, the more opportunities we find. The more one-minded we are, the more contracted we are, the more our reality will be the same, the same, the same, the same, the same. That is a brilliant kind of segue into what I finally wanted to ask you about, which is, I know that you work from home a lot and a lot of people are at home sometimes working you can't go out as much you, you know so we our homes have become these kind of big places for us especially in these current times and certainly there are some people who are literally stuck in their homes um, what i would advise is use your imagination you know if you're just stuck in one room so it's you living in a bed set mm. And you're just stuck in one room and there's lockdown, so you can't really go out anywhere. Then create different spaces in that room. So have a space where you work and have a different space where you sit down and chill or you meditate. Mm. 
And what I always do is I like to punctuate every change in my life with three breaths. So after we have finished talking, I will probably go outside because I love being out in nature. I find it the great balancer. And certainly if you can do that, it's great to do. If you can't, actually just opening the window and looking out at the grey sky and remembering the blue sky behind or the blue sky is just doing something to effect change. So what I'll do after talking to you, I'll go outside, I'll take three deep breaths and then I'll be ready for something different. Mm. And I might eat something and after food, I'll go outside and I'll take three deep breaths and then I'll do the next thing. Mm. So it's punctuating your day with times where you check back in with how you're feeling. Mm. Check back in with yourself so that you don't get lost Because it's very easy to get lost in work. It's very easy to get lost into a routine. Mm. I met a guy just a few months ago um, suffering from from some mild depression. And uh, we were talking about it. And what he used to do when he was working is he would get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and go for a bike ride. And then he would go into work. Well, because he was on furlough, he stopped doing that. Mm. So he stayed in bed till nine o'clock. And he said, I don't really have much motivation during the day. So I said to him, what did you used to do when you were working? And he said, well, I got up at seven o'clock and I go for a cycle ride. I said, what have you done since you've been on furlough? He said, well, I stay in bed till about nine o'clock and then I find it difficult to be motivated. So I said to him, well, why don't you just go back to getting up at seven o'clock and doing your hours exercise and then seeing what the day brings? Mm. And he was like, oh, I'd never thought of that. Mm. You know, often it's those simple things that allow us to be able to effect change. And that's the important thing from working from home, I think, is don't get stuck in a rut. Navigate change. Um, So, yeah, have a place to work, have a place to relax. I would even have a different place to eat. Yeah. You know, and that can be different places within one bed set if that's all you've got. Mm. If you're living in a house, then I would have different rooms that you do different things in so that you go into a different reality. Mm. So that it takes your mind somewhere different. And the most important thing is to remain flexible. Mm. Don't get rigid. You you want to be flexible and adaptable. There's certain things you might want to have as important things. Like, for instance, I try to do 10 minutes of meditation every day. Mm. And actually, during lockdown, it's been easier. And so I got more into into that that routine. That's a small routine that punctuates my my week. And would you do that every day at the same time or it doesn't matter if it's not the same time? I try to do it at the same time because I find it useful to do it at the same time but occasionally life brings something along that requires me to be adaptable. So then I will just bend down with the storm, navigate the storm and when it's finished pop up up and go oh I still need to do my meditation. So there's little things that I might have, healthy habits Mm. that are part of my routine but anything that isn't expansive then I try to limit the amount of time doing it. Mm. You know and if work for you becomes contractive because you're pushing too hard and you're getting stressed then it's time to take a step away and find a way of expanding yourself again.
bit of meditation or just some deep breathing, mm. just a walk in the fresh air makes a difference. Resets that brain again. Yeah. So I try more than anything when working from home in these situations is to not get stuck in a rut, is to imagine my home as actually a city. Yeah. And so I walk to different, or even a country. Yeah. So I walk from the living room into the hallway. I've gone from one town to another. Mm. It's a different reality, and therefore that then makes sure that you keep adapting to change, and you'll keep open for opportunities for new things to take your attention. It's funny, isn't it? Because I was thinking the other day, like the technology, and like you know, we're we're able to access people, podcasts, you know, meditation apps. Uh, TV shows, you know, in like a second, or you can go on Instagram, you can do so much. The the technology, it's really our just working out how not to let our brains completely frazzle and fry with overuse and overstimulation. That, and that's because it's a not something that was around, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago. We didn't have so much stimulation. Yes, and I think it's really important, especially with technology, the way technology has, has grown means that it's designed to give us that serotonin boost. Mm. You know, even the like on Facebook, the thumbs up on Facebook mm. was designed to release peptides. Yeah. And then we get addicted to those peptides. Mm. And we get addicted to emails. Even the little bing that yeah. comes along is designed to evoke an emotional response. Yeah. And so there can be a danger that our emotions are ruled by our technology. Mm. And so that actually we only experience the emotions that the technology wants us to. Mm. And so I always recommend taking a step away from technology with great regularity mm. so that you can experience emotions from the real world. Mm. Technology is wonderful, but at the same time can be terrible. It can give you freedom, it can give you connection, it can bring you information, but at the same time, it can lock you in a prison and bring you lots of illusion. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's again depending on how you interact with it. Mm. There's a danger of living a lot in, the, in this sort of whatever alternative reality your technology creates you. Yes, and it's not real. Mm. That's the thing. It's 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 a it's a construct. Yeah. And it's only really by getting back and connecting with the natural world I think that we then start to really connect with how we truly feel. Mm. Because technology has has advanced in to such a degree that when we interact with technology how we're feeling it's difficult to tell whether it's the technology that's making us feel like that mm. or whether it's us that's making us feel like mm. that. So when you interact with technology and you feel good, it's very difficult to tell whether those good feelings are naturally arising from you or they are subconsciously arising because of what you've experienced through the technology. Mm. Whereas when you go out into nature and a robin sings at you or you see a wonderful sunset, you kind of know you're in the real world there. Yeah. And when I'm feeling overwhelmed, the first question I say to myself is, what can I drop to create some space for me to go out into nature, mm. for me to create some space just to breathe? Mm. The really interesting thing about thinking is that it interrupts our breathing. Really? 
didn't know that. You watch one of your children really concentrating on something. Yeah. They'll hold their breath. Yeah, actually, yeah. You know, when we're actually thinking, we do not breathe calmly and naturally mm. in a rhythm. The rhythm of the breath goes up and down because the thinking evokes emotions. Mm. And so when they are positive emotions, the breathing might become more relaxed. And when they're difficult emotions, it'll become more contractive. Mm. And so the more we think, the less we breathe. Mm. That's, the, that's one of the big powers of meditation, is meditation is really just learning to be with the breath. Mm. That in and out, that rising and falling. And that's then the natural rhythm from which we can build our life. But when we interact with technology all the time, we're going, oh, mm. oh, I got a text. Mm. Oh, so-and-so saying that. Mm. Oh, I don't like that. Mm. Yeah, and so every time it bings at us, we go, we, we breathe in and hold our breath. Mm. It's, we take, a, take a little time to, mm. to say, well, oh, I'm going to notice my breathing. I'm going to try and notice my breathing when I interact with technology. And you'll be really surprised mm. how much you hold your breath. Yeah. Um, someone once I heard, or oh, I don't know where I heard it, was that the reason that bad thoughts get stuck in your head is because it's they're being your heart's being protected so they're getting stuck because something that's really true and like if you go into nature and you feel that beauty you feel that sort of from your heart sort of center but with the problems and the tech, it's very much in your head isn't it it it, it is and I, I think that's a really really good analogy because our heart is the most important organ in our body, really. Mm. Without the heart, we're pretty much toast. Mm. You know, you can cope with only half a liver. You can cope with not working kidneys and having dialysis. But the heart, they can only put you on a machine for a little while. Mm. You know, so the heart is really the centre of who we really are. And the heart is the centre of how we feel. And so many of our thoughts, so many of our bad thoughts aren't really how we truly feel. How we truly feel is that calm blue sky. And what we think we're feeling are just the clouds, the thoughts laid over the top. And once you actually let go of those thoughts, well, then the feelings disappear. But when you stand in front of a wonderful scenery, and you look at something magnificent and it really fills your heart. You watch a rising sun and it fills you with just that awe. Then you carry that awe with you. Mm. I was very blessed that before COVID happened, I went over to America um, on a holiday. I wouldn't be doing it mm. this year, given the circumstances. And I visited the Grand Canyon. And... To actually go there is, it literally takes your breath away. Mm. What you see on films and television is just nothing compared to the experience. And you go, you go there and you are just blown away by the magnificence and the magnitude of Mother Earth. And that was last June. Yeah. And we are now in, well, it was the June before last rather. Yeah. And so we're over a year. I still have that magnificence in my heart. I, I can still feel it. Yeah. I can still tune into it. Yeah. Whereas 
for me to try and tune into something I was angry about 18 months ago. Mm. Well, I can't remember what I was angry about 18 months yeah. ago. It's all because, like you say, it's in my head. Yeah. But the true life-affirming experiences live in our hearts and we, we carry them with us. Mm. Those true connections that we make with nature and with other beings, other spiritual beings on their path, those magic moments that pepper life, those are the things that really expand who we are and those are the things that we can kind of tune into and reignite those bliss peptides anytime. Getting them now. I was getting some good vibes now. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Tilly. Absolute pleasure You're talking amazing. to you. Amazing. Gosh, we'll have to. We'll, we could do another hour. Oh, easily, <laughs> easily. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of that brilliant wisdom, and oh, so happy to have it recorded. You know. Fabulous. Yes. True I pleasure. I can listen to it again. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to rate or review the show and also share it with anyone that you think might enjoy it. You can follow me on Instagram at Tilly at Home With or email me Tilly at Home With at gmail.com.